0: How has working from home been going for you? Remarkably Remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track from managing your motivation, workload, and relationships to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. (music) Let's have a ball at Fenway Hall. We love the old town team. Take the Green Line to the Sicko sign. We love the old town team. Now we're here. We all will cheer. We love the old town team. Our chowders mean we like our beans, but we love the old town team. Welcome into another edition of the Old Town Podcast. This is our Red Sox pod at the Athletic. I'm Tim McMaster, along with Lars Anderson. Um, We are talking about a lot of interesting stuff on the show this week. First of all, the draft has been shortened from 40 rounds to five. We'll talk about steps being taken by Major League Baseball to get to playing baseball and some of the issues that are going to arise with that. And then we're excited to be joined by Dave Magadin. He was the Red Sox hitting coach back in the 2007 championship season. And then for years after that, he's currently the Colorado Rockies hitting coach. But we're going to talk about his experiences with Manny and Big Poppy and Dustin Pedroia and what it's like being a hitting coach in the major leagues now because it's changed a lot over the last 20 years that he's been doing it so a lot of good stuff to get to on the show Lars staying safe out there in California
1: I am sweating right now it's like summertime already I don't know what to do well
0: it's still winter in New York which is probably good because it's keeping everybody a little more indoors so uh so at least we have that going on but um glad you're staying safe let's get into uh baseball first of all and the draft because this was kind of uh a jaw-dropper for me. I've covered the draft for years when I was at MLB, uh, hosted draft coverage as well, and, and just love the Major League Baseball draft, probably more than most people, uh, considering a lot of these players, obviously, you don't hear from for, for years after they're drafted. Um, but a lot of changes for 2020. There is going to be changes because of the situation we're in, but I feel like they're, they're more drastic than they needed to be. Instead of 40 rounds, we're getting five rounds. But maybe even more importantly than that, Anybody that's that's signed after those five rounds can only sign for a maximum of twenty thousand dollars as a bonus, which is a crazy number when you think rounds six through ten. For the most part, those players are usually signing for six-figure bonuses. Um, this is going to have a ripple effect um, across the board, which we'll get into. Well, what were your initial reactions when you heard about these changes?
1: Well, I think it's important to break it break it down to people versus rounds. Um, only 150 players are going to be drafted this year, as opposed to the normal 1,200. MLB is saying that they're doing this so that they can pay their employees, which is you know noble and cool. But it also means that um, almost or a little over a thousand players are not going to be drafted that normally would. So those are a lot of jobs that are lost right there, and that is tough to swallow as a former player because. One, it's a lot of young baseball players' dreams, but also it's going to hurt the game. I mean, if you look if you look throughout history, so many great players were drafted after the sixth round. Um, I just I went down the list. Wade Boggs was a seventh rounder. Jacob Degrom was a ninth rounder. Nolan Ryan was a twelfth rounder. Albert Poulos went in the thirteenth. Don Mattingly was the nineteenth round pick. So you have all these great players that never would have even been drafted under this new um, agreement, and it's it's tough to see.
0: Yeah. And when you talk about that bonus, it's going to have an effect because a lot of players aren't going to want to sign that. So it's going to put a stress on a a lot of different things. Um, I'm not in the finances of Major League Baseball teams. So I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not going to call BS on them that they can't pay their employees. I do know that the actual value of the majority of Major League Baseball teams is upwards of a billion dollars right now, and obviously the league as a whole, um, over years, has made billions and billions of dollars. Um, that said, that's not your day-to-day budget, so I'm not going to necessarily call them out, but but it is, it makes you scratch your head a little bit that they're saying we're doing this so that we can pay our team employees when I feel like the money's probably there, Lars, to to have 10 rounds of a draft and still pay those team employees.
1: I agree. And um, it's not my money. And I, I, I'm not an expert in this. But it, if you follow this at all, it, it just seems to kind of be benefiting the owners. And um, that's kind of par for the course these days. So we'll see how it turns out. It's just I know that you know Major League Baseball has been stating for years that they want to be more relevant with younger players and um, grow the game, grow the game in the inner city, uh, attract more young athletes to play professional baseball. And it sends kind of a mixed message when you take away a thousand job opportunities to play professional baseball. Just you know, on paper, that's what's happening right now, and so it's a pretty inconsistent message from major league baseball. You want young players to play baseball, but you're not providing opportunities for young players to play baseball. So I think Scott Boris said it best. He said when, when he just saw the news that the draft got cut to five rounds, he said, we should probably have bought a billboard that said, go play other sports after literally <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> it was like, you know, you hate to agree with Scott Boris. Cause he's like, you know, the terminator or something, but he's right you know the the, their message is like you should probably go play another sport because there's only 150 real opportunities to play here you know the the thing is is when a player signs he's making 1100 dollars a month so he needs a signing bonus to be able to float him in his career unless his you know family has money that can that they can give to him to support him during his career so it's like your, your monthly wages are less than minimum wage from Major League Baseball. And now you're only, you can only get a $20,000 bonus if you're not in the top five rounds. So it's, it's like, how is that possible? Especially for inner city disadvantaged kids to play professional baseball who don't come from money. It just is not fair.
0: So it's gonna put a crunch on college baseball for sure. But when you think about um, seniors coming out of college are always in a tough spot because there's no negotiation tool there. The juniors are the ones that have the opportunity to sign those bigger bonuses because they can go back to school. Um, So you may not see much of a change from those seniors even though technically, um, the NCAA has granted them another year of eligibility. So seniors, because their, their senior scenes almost canceled, could go back to school next year. I feel like because of this, maybe more of them don't because they just maybe come out anyway, because those bonuses tend to be small for those seniors. So maybe a lot of them end up going pro. But even with that, even if that is the case, you're going to have a lot of juniors who would have been coming out and expecting six figure bonuses and and knowing oh, oh you know what I'm probably a, would have been a seventh round pick now I can only sign for 20,000 now they're going to go back to school for their senior year more than likely plus You have all these high school kids who a lot of them will come out and be taken in those first five rounds, but a lot that would have been taken in, say, the first 10 rounds or even later in getting a bigger bonus from a team that had a big bonus allotment are now going to go to school because they all have these scholarships lined up. So suddenly you have high school kids that weren't going to go to college going to college, seniors typically or potentially going back to college for a second senior year and then juniors going back. But there's no increase in scholarships. So I'm actually, I don't know what these colleges are going to do, Lars, but it's not going to be pretty. Uh,
1: they have to increase the scholarships, right? I mean, like, that's that's the stance I'm right just now, not sure like,
0: the money's there because yeah. the schools have lost out on so much money because the NCAA tournament was canceled. We're right. not sure what's going to happen with college football. I just don't know if the money's there.
1: I think maybe another option that or another outcome that we might see is a rise in um, junior college baseball. That's a great call. You could, you maybe this will lead a a sophomore in junior college to stay one more year in junior college and and do two years there and hope to get drafted after a second year in junior college. And instead of the high school player getting drafted and playing pro ball or going to a four year school, he might opt to go to junior college and take his shot at getting drafted out of junior college. So you might just see a, an uptick in junior college baseball, and I mean, if independent ball had a, if they do have a season, you might see that as another option. Guys might go play independent ball more, but we don't know if if that's going to happen. But I, I do think that um, junior college will see. We'll see kind of the rise of junior college baseball for for at least a year. Yeah, because
0: some people would say, "Oh, the high school kids just go to college for one year, then go pro." Well, that's not how it works. If you're going to a regular uh, university, you have to go for the three years, and and then you go pro. So it's certainly correct. Got- whereas
1: whereas to. Whereas if you're a junior college player, right. you can get drafted off the first
0: year. Of right, so that, that actually made, we could see some great junior college baseball uh, next spring um, based on that. Um, it's it's certainly going to be interesting. So really you take into account what this is going to do as far as taking away an influx of talent into the minor leagues. And then Lars, there's a chance that there's, I actually would say that's probably a probability at this point that there's no minor league baseball 2020. They're having a hard enough time getting the major league baseball season going. So you think about the impact on the big leagues um, a couple of years down the road, maybe when suddenly there's going to be less players in this draft class entering professional teams and no development as far as a minor league season, um, it's got to affect the the level of play at the major league level eventually.
1: Absolutely, baseball there's there's no shortcuts to becoming a major league player. Like you really need that time in the minor leagues to kind of hone your craft and get just acquire that those amount of at bats and innings to be ready to play at that level. So I'm more curious to see if they keep with these really stringent draft rules i mean they they can't just only be five rounds but i know that they wanted to cut down the draft for a long time and i do think that that you know even if it's 10 rounds i I do think it will affect the overall product domestically and i also see it as kind of an opportunity for some of these international leagues like in korea and taiwan and japan to maybe uh, capitalize on that and because there is an incentive there is a money incentive to go play in those places especially japan and korea and if they can entice, if if the um, money incentive is not here anymore through signing bonuses, I I'm curious if they would kind of capitalize. I don't know. That might be a stretch, but I'm just there's so many there's so many kind of potential fallouts from taking away these draft bonuses and taking away these draft picks that uh, guys want to play baseball and they're gonna do it somewhere. So I'm, I I'm just thinking about other places where that will be done.
0: We will see what happens for sure. I think eventually, I mean, this five rounds is not going to stick. I think they wanted to go from 40 to 20. And maybe they go back to twenty next year. We'll see because they're going to move the draft to Omaha at the College World Series and all of that excitement. We've basically gone from making the draft really cool in Omaha at the College World Series to making it pretty much a complete disaster at least for this year. We'll see if it changes back. And of course, and like I said, it's coming from someone who really likes the Major League Baseball draft. All right, I mentioned the minor leagues probably not having a season. It's going to be a struggle at the big league level as well. And as we record this, actually on Monday, um, a lot is is happening and. And a um, proposal is expected to come to the owners today uh, from Major League Baseball, and then that could quickly move on to the union as early as Tuesday. So as we record this, we'll tell you what the latest is, but some of this information could be dated by the time you're listening to this podcast even because it's moving quickly. But the proposal are 78 or 82 games. I know most people were hoping for 100, but hey, we'll take baseball in any form. Uh, regional play, so teams won't be doing major road trips into you know to the other coast or anything like that, and then increasing the playoffs from 10 teams to 14 teams, to seven teams in each league uh, with the top seeds getting by. So those are kind of the major points. Um, if that happens, hey, we have baseball. I think playing for seven playoff spots in 80 games is pretty much going to keep everybody in the race the entire season, which would be kind of fun.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that proposal makes a lot of sense, especially the kind of geographical um, relativism where that's going to work across leagues, too. So, like, AL East teams will only play AL East teams and NL East teams. So everyone will kind of stay in one place as to kind of limit any potential um infection or spread and just kind of keep it more quarantined in that sense
0: which is really rough by the way when you think about that for the red sox perspective you get the yankees you get the rays um you get a better blue jays team and then you get the nationals the braves that well they wouldn't be the braves probably they would probably avoid that but but the mets the nationals i mean it's two good divisions it's a a tough road to hold if you're trying to get one of those wild card spots anyway go ahead
1: yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. But um, I think um, I think it, that that feels good, and I do love that idea of a lot of teams being um, in contention for the playoffs. That was that was something when they added the wild card team. That I, initially I didn't like that, but I, now I have, that having been a, a thing where there's an the extra wildcard team and kind of the playing game, that has really made the last month or two of the season more interesting from a fan's perspective. It's a little unfair to the teams, but I, I do like that. So I think. You know, if we can do this, it will be a, a, um, a potentially fun year of baseball. But that's a big if right now because they're they're going through these kind of uh, labor disputes about. Um, players taking a pay cut, and which they already kind of have agreed to. So we'll we'll see how that goes. What do you think is going to happen?
0: Yeah, that's the bad part. Here is the the ugly side of this is that the players and Major League Baseball agreed to a deal back in March that would basically um, they they advance the players 170 million dollars to be spread around amongst the players to get them through uh, basically April and May. And then the idea was, as part of that, that if baseball did return they would get a prorated salary for the amount of games that are played. If baseball didn't return, they would get to keep the $170 million. But now, because there's probably not going to be any fans in the stands and baseball is looking at more losses financially, they're going back to the players to look for more concessions. And Tony Clark has pretty much already drawn the line in the sand saying that that, it's not going to happen. So I don't know what that means. Um, Don't you think, Lars, that if it comes to it, and, you know, it feels like this can be done safely and the, the kind of world is needs something, needs an outlet, needs sports the way baseball has done it before after 9-11 and things like that, that kind of cooler heads prevail and, and they make something happen. I, I got to believe that there's an agreement to be had, even if it's, you know, somewhere in the middle. But But I can't imagine that they don't play baseball in 2020, not because of the virus, but because of money.
1: If that can't happen, that will like kill baseball. I mean, unemployment being what it is in this country and what, what the world is going through right now. And the amount of deaths and suffering, if baseball can be played and is not played because billionaire owners and millionaire players can't come to an agreement about money, that is going to be, um, as bad a look as baseball has ever had. Um, you know, it's going to be like the 94, 95 strike, uh, all over again. And that, they, uh, they, that can't happen. It would be just such a tragedy for that to happen. I think, I think they need to come to an agreement. I mean, some, uh, an option for me would be just to kind of defer the payments to the players, you know, uh, honor the standing agreement and just say, okay, we'll pay you a portion of your salaries this year. And then once we get back on our feet, we'll pay you through like 2021, 2022. That seems like a reasonable uh, compromise. Cause that, that way, the players will be made whole, and that would open up cash flow for the owners. But no baseball because of a labor dispute would be um, just tragic.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well, lots of news coming. It's coming quickly, and I think by the end of this week, we'll know a lot more about a potential plan to get back to baseball. Of course, a lot can still go wrong and throw it off track, but at least having a plan in place would go a long way. Lars, did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated?
1: I didn't. I'm putting my coffee down right now.
0: Yeah, coffee, a problem too. That's something a lot of people want to kick. We're suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, poor focus. doesn't have to be that way, though. You can use Hydrant. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the essential four electrolytes your body needs. That's sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. They help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day long. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can even save more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com. Enter the promo ATHLETIC at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter the. Promo code ATHLETIC for 25% off your first order. DrinkHydrant.com. Enter that promo ATHLETIC. As we mentioned off the top, Dave Magadan joining the show. Uh, he was the Red Sox hitting coach for a championship back in 2007, and then some years after that as well. Um, a long playing career, originally drafted by the Mets, and then a long coaching career after that as a hitting instructor, um, starting with the Padres, uh, then with the Red Sox, then the Diamondbacks, currently with the Colorado Rockies. So a lot to get to it, Dave. Just on hitting right now in major leagues and, and then looking back on those Red Sox years as well in that 2017. But Dave, thanks for joining the show.
2: It's great to be with you guys.
0: All right. I'll start here. Um, we, and this is how we kind of start all these interviews during this pandemic. Um, what are you doing to stay safe and busy? And are you able to work a little bit at least via Zoom or via whatever conference type thing it is to, to work with players during this stretch?
2: When the uh, suspension happened from uh, spring training, I immediately flew down to Florida to uh, be with my family. Um, And it was about that same time that my two daughters that are 15 and 11, uh, they immediately uh, went to a virtual school uh, from obviously going to school physically. And so it was a a really big transition for them because they had never done that before. Uh, so a lot of my time was spent trying to get them accustomed to doing everything online and trying to hook up with their teachers. And they were using different platforms, so it was very difficult. And at the same time, I was trying to stay in touch with our players and our other staff members with the Rockies. So uh, first couple of weeks, it was a, a bit chaotic. Uh, but after uh, we got settled into the uh, virtual school, and then we kind of set a, um, a weekly schedule to talk to our, our players, We split split them up into three different groups, and uh, every week we have a different theme. Uh, First couple weeks had to do with more baseball stuff internally with the Rockies, and then after that, we've tried to make it a little more fun where there's some competition, some trivia, some uh, questions that are asked of the players, and and so we're trying to keep it fresh so they don't get bored with it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I can imagine as just as a former player, just getting getting going, and then having it all come to an abrupt halt like that must be so jarring and strange. But even as a, as a player for you've you've experienced uh, work stoppages before, and um, including the '94 '95 strike. And it's kind of ironic because this this current coronavirus thing has kind of led to a potential uh, labor dispute between the union and um, the owners. And I'm just I'm kind of curious about your take on it, and are you are you concerned about them them trying to get the the wages sorted out? And what are your feelings about that? Just having had experience in that realm.
2: Well, uh, you know, going back to the strike in in uh, in '94, uh, you know, it was it was a little it was a little similar. Uh, you know, that, that strike was in mid August, so we had already played most most of the season, and led to uh, the postseason being canceled and uh, a lot of fighting between the owners and the players. And, you know, it affected the following year, 95, where it was a shortened season. Uh, spring training was very short that next season. Uh, I was one of the guys that had to go to Homestead and do like a free agent spring training. And, and we little by little, each guy got signed out of that camp that was a free agent. So it, it was a very strange time. Uh uh what happened this spring was a little similar just that especially since we we're towards the end of the spring where guys were already kind of ramped up ready to go we only had like you know maybe a week and a half to go to the till the season started and and they were ready and uh then it came to an abrupt end uh as far as the labor stuff i'm not really i know there's there's uh there's some talks going on right now for for a framework for starting up in, in mid-June and then hopefully playing a season starting in July. I know there's issues with the pay for the players. Uh, ownership wants to uh, wants them to make concessions since there's probably not going to be fans for all, if, for part, if not all, the, uh, the regular season. So uh, I'm not privy to a lot of the, in stuff, the inside stuff going on with that, but I know it's going to be a big issue. And uh, from what I understand, Tony Clark is – pretty firm in his in his stance uh, that you know th- they've already made some concessions with uh, with salary and, and they're not planning on making any others so it could lead lead to some uh, uh, some stuff that I'm sure the, the public doesn't want to hear about they just want to see baseball and yeah it could be frustrating for the fans so we'll see what happens.
0: And I think everybody wants baseball. They just want safe baseball, as safe as we can make it. And that's on both sides. And everybody obviously needs to be negotiated in these situations. So we'll see how it all plays out. Um, So, you know, you first started as a hitting coach, Dave, back in 2003 with the Padres. Um, The game has changed a lot over these last two decades. Um, Talk about how that role has kind of changed that you're in from 2003 to, to what you do now with the Rockies.
2: When I was with San Diego, uh, we didn't have any advanced scouting. So uh, a lot of that stuff I did on my own, I literally would get a a DVD drive with video of the pitchers that we're gonna face uh, in the next series, the relief pitchers and starters. I would physically write up a report on that pitcher and that's what I would give to the players. Uh, And to go from that to what we're in now, where we have a complete team, an analytical team And we have two advanced scouts that travel and and see the teams that we're going to play, write up reports for me. I I look at video also to look at the pictures to familiarize myself with them. But a lot of that stuff, a lot of that work that I did my first four years as a hitting coach in San Diego is now uh, a lot of that is, is delegated amongst, you know, probably 15 to 20 people. So in that in that respect, it's taken a lot of the, the legwork and preparing for the teams. Uh, I still like I said, I still have to look at a lot of video uh, so I know what I'm talking about when I lead the, the advanced meetings with the players. Uh, but it, it frees me up to be able to do a lot of the stuff one on one with the players, either with their swing or their their approach or. Whatever that the case may be, it, it allows me to, to dive into that a little bit more and not be bogged down by a lot of the uh, you know the the clerical stuff that I had to do my first you know four or five years as a hitting coach.
1: It's, it's cool hearing you talk about that because I, I remember uh, for those listening, uh, Mags was my hitting coach in the major leagues with Boston for you know my brief stint up there or stints up there, <laughs> and um, I remember how prepared you were. I remember I mean you're like If I was, you know, a relief pitcher was coming in, I could just turn to you and say, "Okay, what's this guy featuring in?" Even, even in spring training, you're like, "He's got this, 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 and this," and it was like, it never failed to just kind of like shoot a question to you and have that come back, where that was not a normal experience for me in the in the minor leagues, you know, for a variety of reasons. But I could sense that uh, preparedness from you, which was, um, for someone like me, like in the minor leagues, I would keep a book on each pitcher myself. And kind of go through that when uh, when the team came when the opposing team came back into town. So I really appreciated that um, preparedness. And I even remember getting called up to the major leagues for the first time and having a, a scouting report on my chair from you that you you'd set on our chair each day. And it was just like so much information that I actually kind of had to learn how to sift through all that information and take the parts that were helpful to me. And not I was so easily overwhelmed as a player that I had to kind of learn how to filter that information for myself. Which was an interesting process, um, but you've 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 played so much and you've coached so much. I mean, you're like a proper OG of baseball at this point, point. and <laughs> I, I just want to know what what is more stressful, um, being in a slump as a player or watching your hitters or your team being in a slump from the perspective of a coach.
2: No doubt, being a coach. Uh, I felt like as a player and not that it wasn't frustrating as a player to go through slumps and, and your struggles. And, you know, especially myself, I had a young family when I first got to the big leagues and you know, it, it uh, you know, you worry about that stuff providing for them and, you know, you know, carving out a career in the big leagues is, you know, something that's, that's always on your mind as a player. Uh, but as a coach, uh, you have to deal with so many different dynamics, different personalities. Uh, some guys handle slumps better than others. Some guys are in the position that I just talked about—that I was in when I first got to the big leagues. Are trying to, you know, establish themselves as major league players, and so in everybody's, you know, there's all these different uh, personalities that you have to kind of navigate to to uh, get everybody kind of pulling in the same direction and. and being the type of offensive club that you for, you, know, you foresee them to be, uh, and, and to me that's the biggest thing with the major league hitting coach is, you know, yeah, you're dealing with the mechanics of guys' swings and trying to make them bet, better individually and make them the best that they can be, but you also have to get them to buy into your philosophy, uh, whether it's patience, whether it's you know being very very aggressive, whether and, and it changes really for every for every pitcher that you're going to face. So your your goal when, when you're having these advanced scouting meetings is getting everybody pulling in the same direction so you can attack the pitcher or the team as a unit rather than just nine individual at-bats that everybody's kind of on, the, on a different page. So, uh, you know, to me that, it, it can be frustrating because, you know, there's always somebody in the slump when you're when you're a hitting coach. There's always somebody <laughs> yeah. struggling. Good point. I, I, go, I go back to my first year as a hitting coach and we were facing uh, Greg Maddox when he was with the Braves and we had a ton of guys injured and I was like, man, how are we going to get to this guy? And we ended up knocking him out in the second inning. We scored like 22 runs that game. <laughs> but Gary Bennett went 0 for 7. You know, right, so it's right. like, as happy as you are as a hitting coach to be able to do that to a guy like Maddox and, and uh, you know, drop that many runs on a team, there I was having to console uh, Bennett who had, who had had one of his worst games as a, as a major league player. So uh, there's always somebody to, to try, and, try and get better.
1: That's there me. is there is always that there's always going to be that one guy having to practice the swing in the mirror at two in the morning at the hotel after the game.
2: No
1: <laughs> doubt, one hundred percent. No but. doubt. And,
2: and, and as soon as you think you've got it licked, and you're like you think, okay, we got everybody going in the right direction. You know, uh, all twelve or thirteen hitters seem to be swing the bats pretty good. We're on a pretty good streak as an offense. But then it never fails, man. You go to the next game, somebody goes Oh, for 5 or 3 punchies, and, and you're like, all right, well, what are we going to do to try and get him reeled back in? So there, there's always somebody.
1: In my career, if I even had the thought, I have this figured out, I like, drop, would drop to my knees and repent to the baseball guys <laughs> and be like, I didn't mean that. I didn't think it. I didn't say it. I take it back. Because like, that was the kiss of death to like just be like, oh, I kind of got this now. And just like, yeah, the next game, the bottom falls out, and you should i felt like i should just go hit right-handed or something um it's a
2: very humbling game
1: it really is and i'm still having nightmares about it like weekly it's ridiculous i have (laughs) baseball nightmares over and over so uh, another challenge that you that that uh you know yourself and and major league hitting coaches are are facing right now is kind of the rise of the personal hitting coach um where guys go in, in the off season go work with their own guy And now it seems like even more so than when I was playing, um, the personal hitting coach is kind of in contact with the player and even flying out and working with players during the season. And I'm just kind of curious about what that's like for you. I'm I'm sure that's a a new challenge, um, having a few different voices in the player's ear. And um, do you have much contact with those guys? you kind of work together? Or just talk us through that a little bit.
2: It it is a very uh, difficult uh, situation to, to navigate because uh, the one thing as a hitting co- any kind of coach, pitching coach, hitting coach, is the more uh, the more people that the uh, the hitter or the pitcher is listening to, the more difficult it can be to t- to coach them. Uh, you want one voice for the most part, and what I try and do is create a dialogue with with these uh, these off season hitting guys, especially with. With our marquee players so that uh, I'm not saying anything or they're not saying anything that is contrary to what I feel is important. Uh, so I, I try and create that dialogue in the off season. It's really hard to keep a handle on it because guys jump around to different hitting gurus in the off season. Uh, I've had guys that have used two different guys in the, the off season. So for the most part, what I try and do is at, at the very least create some communication as much as I can with their hitting guy in the off season, And then in turn, have a dialogue with the hitter themselves in the off season. So at least I'm getting some amount of information. Uh, I always felt like and there are some good hitting guys, you know, and, and I know you've experienced some some good guys in, that you work with throughout your career. But uh there's there's a lot of quacks out there too, and there's a lot of guys that, <laughs> that uh, don't have uh, uh, they're they're not they don't have any responsibility uh, to the player. They can just say that you know, hey, you look great. You're not facing 95 mile or cutters like <laughs> I'm having to deal with, with these guys when I'm seeing them during during the season. You know, they're doing flips with them in the cage. You're throwing BP to them, and everything looks great. And that's slowed down atmosphere uh but when i'm dealing with the players where they're dealing with offers slumps uh really good pitching and you're trying to get through all that and help them to stay sane and, and stay on the on the same page as you and not be the type of hitter that if i don't tell them what they want to hear they're going to go find it from somebody else that's when you have a problem so uh, it, it's, I'm not going to lie, it's a, it's a very difficult situation. Uh, I had a lot of trouble with it when it first, at, at the first onset of, of when this was all happening. But I, I've tried to, there's no way I'm going to eliminate it. Guys are still going to do it. Uh, guys have their favorites. They've got guys that they've worked with ever since they were in high school. Trevor Story's got a guy that he's, he's worked with uh, throughout his, his whole career, had him in high school. Uh, So that's not going to change. So I've got to find a way to make it work and not only make it work for the team, but make it work for the player.
0: Makes sense and that you would kind of embrace it a little more than, than trying to get in the way of it, that that would be the correct way to go. And, and I think that is when you think of Tim Hyers the last couple of years with the Red Sox, he had that same kind of attitude. Uh, Christian Vasquez last year kind of famously had his breakout season and gave a lot of credit to his offseason hitting coach. And and Tim Hires just said, hey, it, anything we can all do to make these guys better hitters, Um, is what we want to do. So I, I definitely think that makes a lot of sense. Wanted to get your thoughts on some of those Red Sox players back in your time in Boston. There was obviously some great ones in there. Um, some that were already kind of established when you arrived in two thousand, late 2006 into 2007, and then you helped some along the way as they were first kind of getting going. So I wanted to start with Manny Ramirez, um, and and one reason is because he's suddenly in the news as a guy who is trying to get back to playing baseball again. 49 years old, and he wants to play in Taiwan, Dave. Um, My first question is, do you think a 49-year-old Manny Ramirez can still hit?
2: I don't see any reason why he wouldn't because at 40 – six he hit when he tried he played i think he (laughs) he tried to play like three or four years ago and he hit like he hit like 320 with you know eight eight or nine bombs drove in like 43 runs so uh you know Manny takes care of his body uh can he go out there and play on an everyday basis you know 100 games i don't think he could probably do that but i wouldn't put anything past him uh he was born to hit and he certainly still uh treasures that that competition with the pitcher every time he gets in the box Uh, so I wouldn't put anything past him Uh, and as far as working with him I thought he was great Uh, you know he had that reputation of being a guy that that didn't work and you know didn't care about his defense and all he cared about was hitting and he had his own way of thinking and there was no no way to change the way he was thinking at the plate and all that but he was, he was great. I, I had a really good dialogue with him. He was the first guy in the cage every day. Well, him and Pedro were the first two guys in the cage every day. Uh, he was open mm-hmm. to new things. If I felt like he was doing something different that was uh, counter to what I felt like he should be doing, some of the stuff he should be doing when he's going well, he was open to it. He tried to make the adjustments. So with me, he was, he was always great. He worked very hard. He worked hard on his defense, too. He was, you know – Probably one of the better left fielder that left fielders that ever played at Fenway knew how to play the wall. He worked on it, uh, so I had no 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 uh, issues with uh, with Manny at all. He was he was a great hitter, and he was always open to try new things. and And uh, he was a listener, and, and he would give you good feedback too.
0: There was obviously the, the Manny being Manny thing that, that went with him, and he carried that throughout his career and the goofiness. And, and a lot of people would always say, you know, he's a hitting savant and it's just a natural thing. But Lars has talked about that on this podcast as well, that nobody worked harder than that guy. Um, and and I feel like he it probably still doesn't get credit. And, and obviously the, the failed drug test didn't help him either late in his career. But this guy um, – do you think that's fair to say that he didn't get enough credit for the hard worker that he was in the cage? I don't
2: think he did. I don't think he, he got the credit he deserved because, uh, you know, as a hitting coach, it's always great to have a player that, sure, they're talented and they're they're good and they have you know, God-given ability, uh, but it's those hitters that know themselves and know why they're good hitters. Uh, and I know, Lars, you've written about this at length uh, in The Athletic where you know, you kind of had success. You didn't know why you had success. And when you struggled, you didn't know where to go with it. You know, you didn't know the adjustment that you had to make. And and when you have a hitter like Manny who knows himself and when you when you can pick his brain and you can have that dialogue with him and, and you understand his swing and he understands the swing, that's an easy conver- uh, conversation to have when he's struggling and when he's not getting hits and when he's not hitting the ball hard. And it's it becomes an easier an uh, easier an adjustment, but when he's when you're when you're dealing with a hitter that struggles to understand why he's a good hitter or why he's hitting the ball hard, and then as a hitting coach you go to that player and you, you try to make an adjustment with him, it, it's a struggle because he's fighting you because he doesn't understand it and he thinks it's something else and. So that it becomes a, a butting of heads rather than a collaboration and try and make him get back to where he needs to be. So in that respect, Manny was was very easy because he knew himself and he, he took criticism well and he, he took instruction well and he made the adjustments he needed to make to get back on track.
1: Yeah, I, I knew Manny later in his career, but... Manny, Manny would ask the hot dog vendor what he saw in his swing. So, like, he was pretty, like, open to, like, advice. <laughs> he might not take it, but, like, he really asked everybody what they thought about his swing. It was pretty hilarious. And just kind of to follow up with that, it is a it is really, like, a, I think a, a hitting coach, and I experienced this with, the, with you and some of my other hitting coaches, they're kind of like a, a walking hard drive for, for a player where... They remember what you were doing when you were going well, and part of that part, I think, part of a, a hitting coach's job is to kind of remind you of some of those things that you were doing well. Like, hey, Lars, when you're hitting well, you're on time and you're swinging at good pitches and you're being aggressive. Whatever it is, you know, each player is different. But um, and and also sometimes those things that you did that you were successful with in years past they don't work any longer. I remember um, Jacoby Ellsbury coming off that year where he almost won the MVP, and the next year. I remember him working so hard that it was always trying to go back to what he did last year and just, it didn't really seem to work. And maybe you could talk a little bit more about that with him specifically. Cause I, I have a distinct memory of him going into that spring and trying so hard to do what he did in 2011 and it just wasn't really happening. And it just, it's, it's a tough balance to kind of know when to, when to let go of, of past success.
2: Yeah. I think he, he's a very good example of that. Uh... You know, in, in 2011, when he sent a second to, I think Verlander. I think Verlander won the, the MVP that year. And, and uh, really, we didn't make a lot of physical adjustments, or I should say, mechanical adjustments. I just, if and if you remember Jacoby when he came up through the minor leagues, and really when he when he first got to the big leagues, he was he was in that mode where it was more. He wanted to see the ball first and make sure it was a strike and then kind of decide that he's going to swing. And you know, Lars, as a hitter, it's very difficult to hit that way. You have to, in your mind, assume you're going to swing at every single pitch and then your eyes tell you not to swing. And when you do that, you're on time for every pitch. You get ready. Uh, you're, You're never late. And he had a habit of, of kind of hitting the other way. He wanted to make sure it was a strike first and then decide to swing. And he was very late hitting balls in the other team's dugout,
1: I a lot of that.
2: fake balls over, you know, late down the left field line. And when you saw him take BP, you know, when he was in his mind in batting practice, you're thinking, I'm swinging at every pitch because every pitch is mostly a strike. I mean, he had as much raw power as anybody on our team. He was launching balls over the bullpen at Fenway, and he could hit the ball as far as anybody. So, it was hammering that home to him over and over again for not only 2011, but his whole time that I had him. Jacoby, you have to, you have to swing. You have to have that mindset that you're going to swing at every single pitch, and then your eyes will tell you not to swing. So when he finally started doing that in, the, in 2011 is when he had the you 30-plus know, homer season, 100 RBIs, leading off, uh, almost won the MVP. And I think what happened the following year is he lost that, and he was trying more to mimic the mechanics of what he was doing in, mm. two, in 2011 rather than, hey, stay aggressive, do the same thing, mindset, swing at every pitch. I tell you not to swing. And instead, he was trying to mem- – he was even asking me, hey, do you know what I did in the on-deck circle to get ready? And, like, <laughs> he was literally trying to mimic every movement that he was trying to do from 2011, and it, it, it got in his mind. He was overanalyzing stuff, and, and, I mean, he still had an okay year and ended up signing a great deal to go with the Yankees. But to me, he's never been the same hitter. That he was.
1: Yeah. I remember just being what kind of being a fly on the wall and watching that whole process. And it was, it was kind of fascinating. But also, if I was, if I was closer with him, I, I might have said, like, hey, man, like, I think you're asking the wrong questions right now. I think, I think you need to let some of that go and like get more in what's happening right now, you know? Um, right. a guy who didn't seem to have a problem with that was, was David Ortiz. And, um, having him and Manny. I, I I had the pleasure of playing with David. I I've, I only played with Manny much later in his career, not when he was with Boston. And did those guys share more similarities or differences in their their approach at the plate and their thought process? I'm I'm curious about that because they're obviously so prolific hitting back to back in that lineup. And I just would kind of love to hear if they if they had more overlap or more differences to get to their respective like wildly successful careers.
2: That's a good question. Uh, I think David, uh, they were similar in the fact that they were very patient. They knew the strike zone. Uh, they knew how to attack pitchers. They knew what they were looking for. They knew themselves. Uh, I think Manny probably knew his swing a little bit better than David did. Uh, David was, uh, a lot of God-given ability, a lot of hard. He didn't, you know, obviously worked very hard and, you know, he was a DH. So he had time to go in there and do nothing but hit and, you know, could go in the cage during the game and, uh, you know, he didn't really have to worry about defense that much. But I think the biggest difference between the two is that David, David was uh, very emotional. Uh, he was uh, – not that, not that Manny didn't have passion, but Manny was very, you know, 4 for 4 or 0 for 4 He'd come back in the dugout, put his helmet in the, in the rack, and he always had the attitude like it was just a matter of time. Uh, you know, whether I'm 0 for 20 or, or 15 for, for 30, uh, he was very even keel. David was very emotional. He, you know, if, you, if he was going through a bad period, you could see it, he, he, he reacted, he threw his helmet, he would argue with umpires. Manny didn't really argue with umpires very, very much. Uh, didn't make David a bad person, he just had a different personality. And, and he was he was more reactive to what was going on in the field. Uh, and Manny was was a little more uh, even keel.
0: So when those guys were, or when you came to Boston, those guys were kind of already established um, postseason heroes and all of that stuff. They had been on that 0-4 team, but there was some other players that were keys to that 0-7 team that you kind of helped earlier in their career. You mentioned Dustin Pedroia, and and he's obviously got that that mentality of a guy who was the first one to the ballpark and all of that. Um, but talk about. When he was first because oh seven was you know his first time up there full time with the Red Sox. um how was he early on as far as confidence and all of that stuff? because i if I remember correctly, he started that year dreadfully, right? And a lot of people were calling that he should be sent back down and Terry Francona stuck with him,
2: yeah, uh, Dustin, I think got off to like his first sixteen bats. He was hitting like a buck 60, buck seventy, uh, Alex Coryth. Alex core at the time was swinging the bat pretty good, really good defender. Uh, a lot of people were calling for Alex to be our second baseman. And, and you know, all of us on the staff knew that, that as, as good a player as Alex was, we were going to be better if Dustin we can get Dustin on track. And it was only a, it was a small snapshot of the season. Uh, but obviously a young player, you want them to get off to a good start. He didn't. He was putting a lot of pressure on himself he never he never lacked confidence he, he never was like he never came in the cage it was like man i forgot how to hit he had that attitude like it's just a matter of time it's just a matter of time and with him it was, it was always uh sure you work mechanically with him do some things differently whether it was a stride or you know keeping his head still whatever it was uh But with him, it was always keeping him pumped up, always, you know, Dustin, you're the best second baseman in the game, man. You you know, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. And he would agree with you. It wasn't like he was thinking, oh, he wasn't. But he, 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 you could just see him get pumped up when you were saying stuff like that to him. So a lot of the work with Dustin was done, mental. you know, the mental approach and and, you know, keeping him pumped up and. And agreeing with him saying that it's going to be a laser show and he's going to hit line drives all <laughs> over the place. And, he, you know, he's he was going to win a gold glove and a batting title and this and that. And, and uh, you know, and, and in between all that stuff, yeah, you work with the mechanics and, and try to keep them on track. But
1: uh, I think for the
2: most part, it was, it was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, you're talking a lot of crap to each other and, and kept them pumped up
1: you had to kind of be like the hype man flavor of flame for for pd huh absolutely <laughs> um another another guy that's you know a lot of unique characters here is, is Kev- kevin Euclid. and how much how much did you work with Euclid and his mechanics how do you even talk to him about his mechanics because his setup was so strange but you know usually when guys get to the same place it, to the part where they're swing at the pitch things kind of line up but did he work on mechanics much? What, what were some of his keys?
2: Yeah, I mean, he did. He, you know, he he kind of morphed into what you probably saw later on. Uh, when I first got there, his setup was not quite as extreme as it as it ended up being. His hands weren't so high. He wasn't pointing the bat as much to the pitcher. You know, he held his hands high, but he still had them closer to the launch launch point. Uh, you know, he had that little hitch and he would kind of drop his hands into the slot and it was only maybe a four-inch movement that he had to make. But as, you know, I think it was 2008, he almost won the MVP. He finished second to to, uh, Pedroia in the MVP. He had a great year. And then after that, 09, 10, uh, 11, he started getting his hands real high, you know, it's almost like it's like that old thing where you as a hitter, you're like, hey, I feel good with my hands high. And then like a month later, you've got them, <laughs> like eight inches higher than they were when you first started doing it, you know. So it was almost like that. That's what happened to Kevin. He, he got his hands to, to in a position where it was a long route when he was loading to get ready to swing. It went from like a three or four inch movement to like a eight or nine inch movement. And, you know, made him late, he had to make decisions earlier uh, and he lost kind of the strike zone a little bit, wasn't picking up spin and he was still, you know, he's still a good hitter, but he went from a guy that was going to strike out 110 times to a guy that was striking out 130, 140 times, his average went down, he wasn't driving the ball as much. And then he, he ended up having some injuries that affected his uh, career, but for me, what I looked at mechanically with him was I didn't care where his hands started when I first got there because they were still pretty close to the point where he would load and it was a movement where he was he was closer to that, that firing spot and he was still able to make good decisions on what, what pitches to swing at. And then he went, he, you know, when he put his hands up higher, it made it a bigger movement and then it created a situation where he had to make his decision sooner and to me, it, it made him less of a hitter. So uh, strange setup for him, but it got even stranger the more I had him because what he was doing early on just wasn't feeling good to him.
1: That's so strange. I, I can I can relate to that. And also those those changes when you're taking you know two hundred swings a day or how many swings you take in a professional day, the 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 changes that feel little when you keep repeating that change, it, it gets bigger and bigger. I mean, I, I did the same thing where like, I would, oh, I'm gonna try to spread out a little bit and then a week later, you know, I'm, I'm standing the length of the batter's box or even like you, I remember I wanted my hands a little higher and then a month later, my hands are, you know, four inches over my helmet and it's just like, how the hell did that happen? Right. I don't even know. But those, the change feels small, but over time it, it grows big and all of a sudden your, uh, your setup is totally different. I was always, I always thought of my setup as like an accordion. It's always like these big changes. And I was always um, kind of dumbfounded how some guys, they, they just kind of look all the, all the same all the time. Like I remember Petey, his setup always looked the same to me. It was kind of like, I don't, I don't understand that. Because if you look at Lars Anderson 2007 through 2012, you're going to see 20 different batting stances. And probably part of that is just mm-hmm. me freaking out and wanting to change. But a lot of it was kind of unconscious changing just because of the amount of reps I was taking.
2: I think what ultimately happens to Lars is that when you do, when you repeat something over and over and over again, that at first felt like it was a little strange, but the more you do it, you feel more comfortable with it. You end up making it a bigger change so you can feel it again.
1: And it's
2: kind of a constant cycle, right? You're like, I got it. You know, it's got to feel this way. It's got to feel this way. And when you don't feel it right away, you end up exaggerating it to make it feel the way you want it to feel.
1: Especially as, really a, as a, especially some guys are, are really feel oriented. Like I was, I was very feel oriented, especially early in my career. And at the end of my career, I finally got to the place where was like, I don't have to feel good to still be productive. And that was really liberating. But early in my career, you know, if my hands didn't feel good, it was a really big uphill battle. And, I gave away a lot of at bats just because I didn't feel good, you know, and that was really frustrating. Looking back on that, whereas like at the end of my career, I could say, okay, I don't feel great, I can still have a good at bat. I don't, I don't have to be hundred percent, and that was liberating, but kind of too late at that point. And I guess as a as a hitting coach, my my question to you is. When when do you know when to offer advice and when to hold back? You know, it's like I'm sure you can look at you know all of your hitters and have something that would help them, but it's not always advantageous for a hitting coach to give that advice. And I'm curious about that decision making process for you.
2: Well, you, do you have like three hours? <laughs> <over it? laughs> uh, I think it. You you have to learn your players. You have to learn their personalities. There's some guys you can talk to right after the at bat some guys you got to wait till after the game some guys you got to wait maybe the next day Uh, some guys you got to kind of pick your spots within the next two or three days so it's it's knowing your players uh, listening to them asking them the right questions so maybe you know you can you can force not maybe force is the wrong word but when you're asking the right questions you can create that dialogue to where now you can insert maybe something that you want to say to them or maybe an adjustment you want them to want them to make. And, you know, ask them how they felt. Uh, Why didn't, you know, why didn't you, why didn't you feel like you can drive the ball to right center? I mean, that pitch was like up outer third, you know, why'd you, you know, why'd you feel like you pounded that ball on on the ground at the pull side and you know, how'd your hands feel? Whatever the questions are that are going to lead them, uh, to the area that you want to discuss in some guys, you almost have to make it their idea. You have to, <laughs> you know, you have to kind of, uh, bait them into like, and like, like, you know, I have players like that now where you have to kind of, you have to make it be their idea. That's it's, you got to lead them there, let them start the, uh, or create the dialogue in that area. And then you kind of add your two cents while you're both talking about that stuff. Other guys, you can go right away and say, Hey, your hands are, uh, you know, a lot lower than they were, you know, a week ago. Let me show you the video you can do a comparison thing and right away, they can make an adjustment. Other guys are are different. So I guess to answer your question, everybody's different. You know, during the course of a season, I can have, between 20 and 25 different players, Uh, and it's my job to learn them and understand what makes them tick, not only between the ears, but mechanically, what makes them good hitters. So then now when they stray from that, whether it's mentally or physically, I have a, a basis to go by and I can now have an intelligent conversation with them.
0: One last question for you, Dave, and it's about Lars. Uh, He came up, obviously, with the Red Sox as a pretty good, pretty big heralded uh, prospect, um, struggled with the Red Sox in his time there before moving on a little bit at the big league level, but he's given me permission to ask about him. Um, How tough was it on you as a hitting coach to see a guy like Lars come up and and battle kind of the demons that he had to in the box as a hitter um, in his time with the Red Sox?
2: Tough question. Uh... (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) <laughs> well, you,
2: you know, I, I, I'm, I guess my – if you had to pigeonhole me in the homie into philosophy as a hitting coach, you know, swinging at strikes, patient, uh, ready to do damage in the area, the part of the plate that they're, they're uh, looking in. Uh, and Lars had those things, man. He, he could drive the ball. His po- Most of his power is probably left center. Uh, but he had a good approach. He swung at strikes. He knew the strike zone. So he was in that mold of the Boston Red Sox player that we're all trying to develop and get to the big leagues and contribute at the big league level. But right away, maybe not right away, but as I grew to know Lars and know his personality and all that, he was he was a big thinker. Uh, he he was very analytical. Uh, he uh, he was really in, he was really in tune to the little things he was doing at the plate. And we all as hitting coaches, all the hitting coaches that he had in the minor leagues. And then eventually when he had, when I had him in the big leagues, he was a, he was a tinkerer and he was a field guy. So, you know, he, he, you know, it was, it was hard to, to get a grasp on what he was trying, trying to do. Cause it seemed like every day he was trying to do something different. And, very reactionary, uh you know, <laughs> 0 for 4, 0 for 8. No, oh, I got to do something different. You know, why am I going 0 for 4, 0 for 8? Well, Lars, you hit, you hit four balls right on the screws. They just didn't fall in. Yeah, but you know, I should have hit that ball out of the park. <laughs> and so it, it was a it was a constant uh, struggle. Uh, it was a tug of war to get him to to liberate himself and and go with with uh, you know. With being a little more free at the plate, uh, let his his natural abilities take over. Yeah, continue to work and hone hone the swing, but uh, be okay with hitting two out of four balls hard and not feeling like you had to change something. And you can see it was a constant battle between his ears of uh, letting letting go of that and, and being a little more freer.
1: Yeah, that's that's so that's I can picture myself in those times. Um. Uh, going through all those things and he's dead on and the probably the frustrating thing was I was I was really uh really fragile with advice and any sort of advice would kind of like set me down this rabbit hole so I, I imagine it was tough for mags and a lot of my hitting coaches to to watch some of this and know that they had to be really careful with what they said to me to not make the situation worse it it probably would have um you know I just I wish I would have you know hindsight is what it is but I kind of got to some of those places later in my career, but like I said, by that time it was a little bit too late. I wish I would have had that when I was 20 years old, but um, mm-hmm. it's a tough game, man. It is, it is tough to be. It, I definitely overthought things and, like you said, tinkered and stuff. And it's a it's a great baseball is great for learning those things about yourself, and um, it's cool to kind of kind of hear that. You know, you know, 13, 10 years later.
2: No, I was just gonna say, and, and that's why as a hitting coach you can never feel like you you know everything because you learn something from every player that you've ever had. And, and, you know, the guys that I had in San Diego for four years and then Boston for six and Texas and Arizona. And I've learned from every one of those guys. And and just when you think you've had every single type of player personality, mechanically between the ears, whatever, whatever the case may be, you're going to, you're going to end up with somebody that, that it's going to teach you something new about yourself and, and about the game of baseball and, and make, it'll, it'll make you look differently at the game and that's what it's all about.
0: Yeah. Fascinating stuff. The art of hitting in general is just, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people say it is the hardest thing to do in sports, hitting a round ball with a round bat. Um, but great insight from you, Dave. Thanks for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Uh, hope you stay safe and hopefully the, the Rockies and all the major league baseball get going here in a couple months.
2: You and me both, you guys stay safe and, and great visiting with you.
0: That's going to do it for this edition of the Old Town Podcast. You can save 40% off a subscription to The Athletic. Go to the slash greenmonster for that. We want to thank the Beantown Swing Orchestra for the music at the beginning and end of the show as well. We'll be back again next Monday with a new episode. Until then, thanks for tuning in.